Chapter Twenty Three, Part Two of A Short History of Scotland by Andrew Lang, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three, The Gowrie Conspiracy, Part Two, The Union of the Crowns. In sixteen hundred, James imposed three bishops on the Kirk. Early in sixteen o one, broke out Essex's rebellion of one day against Elizabeth, a futile attempt to imitate Scottish methods as exhibited in the many raids against James. Essex had been intriguing with the Scottish king, but to what extent James knew of and encouraged his enterprise is unknown. He was on ill terms with Cecil, who in 1601 was dealing with several men that intended no good to James. Cecil is said to have received a sufficient warning as to how James, on ascending the English throne, would treat him, and he came to terms, secretly, with Mar and Kinloss, the king's envoys to Elizabeth. Their correspondence is extant, and proves that Cecil, at last, was running the Scottish course, and making smooth the way for James's accession. The correspondence begins in June, 1601. Very early on Thursday, March 24th, 1603, Elizabeth went to her account, and James received the news from Sir Robert Carey, who reached Holyrood on the Saturday night, March 26th. James entered London on May 6th, and England was free from the fear of many years concerning a war for the secession. The Catholics hoped for lenient usage. Disappointment led some desperate men to engage in the gunpowder plot. James was not more satisfactory to the Puritans. Encouraged by the fulsome adulation which grew up under the Tudor dynasty, and free from dread of personal danger, James henceforth governed Scotland with the pen, as he said, through the Privy Council. This method of ruling the ancient kingdom endured till the Union of 1707, and was fraught with many dangers. The king was no longer in touch with his subjects. His best action was the establishment of a small force of mounted constabulary, which did more to put down the eternal homicides, robberies, and family feuds than all the sermons could achieve. The persons most notable in the Privy Council were Seton, later Lord Dunfermline, Hume, created Earl of Dunbar, and the king's advocate, Thomas Hamilton, later Earl of Haddington. Bishops, with Spottiswoode, the historian, Archbishop of Glasgow, sat in the Privy Council, and their progressive elevation, as hateful to the nobles as to the Kirk, was among the causes of the civil war under Charles I. By craft and by illegal measures James continued to depress the Kirk. A general assembly, proclaimed by James for July 1604 in Aberdeen, was prorogued. Again, unconstitutionally, it was prorogued in July 1605. Nineteen ministers, disobeying a royal order, appeared and constituted the assembly. Joined by ten others, they kept open the right of way. James insisted that the council should prosecute them. They, by fixing a new date for an assembly, without royal consent, and James, by letting years pass without an assembly, broke the charter of the Kirk of 1592. The preachers, when summoned to the trial, declined the jurisdiction. This was violently construed as treason, and a jury, threatened by the legal officers with secular, and by the preachers with future spiritual punishment, by a small majority condemned some of the ministers, January 1606. This roused the wrath of all classes. James wished for more prosecutions. The council, in terror, prevailed on him to desist. He continued to grant no assemblies till 1608, and would not allow caveats, limiting the powers of bishops, to be enforced. He summoned, 1606, the two Melvilles, Andrew and his nephew James, to London, where Andrew bullied in his own violent style, 
and was quite illegally first imprisoned, and then banished to France. In December 1606 a convention of preachers was persuaded to allow the appointment of constant moderators, to keep the presbyteries in order, and then James recognized the convention as a general assembly. Suspected ministers were confined to their parishes or locked up in Blackness Castle. In 1608 a general assembly was permitted the pleasure of excommunicating Huntley. In 1610 an assembly established episcopacy, and no excommunications not ratified by the bishop were allowed. The only comfort of the godly was the violent persecution of Catholics, who were nosed out by the constant moderators, excommunicated if they refused to conform, confiscated, and banished. James could succeed in these measures, but his plan for uniting the two kingdoms into one, Great Britain, though supported by the wisdom and eloquence of Bacon, was frustrated by the jealousies of both peoples. Persons born after James's accession, the post-Nati, were, however, admitted to equal privileges in either kingdom, 1608. In 1610 James had two of his bishops, and Spottiswood consecrated by three English bishops, but he did not yet venture to interfere with the forms of Presbyterian public worship. In 1610 James established two courts of high commission, in 1615 united in one court, to try offences in morals and religion. The archbishops presided, laity and clergy formed the body of the court, and it was regarded as vexatious and tyrannical. The same terms, to be sure, would now be applied to the interference of preachers and presbyteries with private life and opinion. By 1612 the king had established episcopacy, which, for one reason or another, became equally hateful to the nobles, the gentry, and the populace. James's motives were motives of police. Long experience had taught him the inconveniences of presbyterial government as it then existed in Scotland. To a church organized in the Presbyterian manner, as it has been practiced since 1689, James had originally, at least, no objection. But the combination of Presbyterian Hildebrandism with factions of the turbulent noblesse, the alliance of the power of the keys with the sword and lance, was inconsistent with the freedom of the state and the individual. The absolutism of James, says Professor Hume Brown, was forced upon him in large degree by the excessive claims of the Presbyterian clergy. Meanwhile, the thievish border clans, especially the Armstrongs, were assailed by hangings and banishments, and Ulster was planted by Scottish settlers, willing or reluctant, attracted by promise of lands, or planted out, that they might not give trouble on the border. Persecution of Catholics was violent, and in spring 1615 Father Ogilvy was hanged after very cruel treatment directed by Archbishop Spottiswood. In this year the two ecclesiastical courts of high commission were fused into one, and an assembly was coerced into passing what James called hotchpotch resolutions, about changes in public worship. James wanted greater changes, but deferred them till he visited Scotland in 1617, when he was attended by the luckless figure of Laud, who went to a funeral, in a surplice. James had many personal bickerings with preachers, but his five main points, the Articles of Perth, of these the most detested were, 1. Communicants must kneel, not sit, at the communion, 4. Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost must be observed, and 5. Confirmation must be introduced, were accepted by an assembly in 1618. They could not be enforced, but were sanctioned by Parliament in 1621. The day was called Black Saturday, 
and omens were drawn by both parties from a thunderstorm which occurred at the time of the ratification of the Articles of Perth by Parliament in Edinburgh, August 4, 1621. By enforcing these articles James passed the limit of his subjects' endurance. In their opinion, as in Knox's, to kneel at the celebration of the Holy Communion was an act of idolatry, was ball-worship, and no pressure could compel them to kneel. The three great festivals of the Christian Church, whether Roman, Genevan, or Lutheran, had no certain warrant in Holy Scripture, but were rather repugnant to the word of God. The king did not live to see the bloodshed and misery caused by his reckless assault on the liberties and consciousness of his subjects. He died on March twenty-seventh, 1625, just before the Easter season in which it was intended to enforce his decrees. The ungainliness of James's person, his lack of courage on certain occasions, he was by no means a constant coward, and the feebleness of his limbs might be attributed to prenatal influences. He was injured before he was born by the sufferings of his mother at the time of Riccio's murder. His deep dissimulation he learnt in his bitter childhood and harassed youth. His ingenious mind was trained to pedantry. He did nothing worse, and nothing more congenial to the cruel superstitions of his age, than in his encouragement of witch-trials and witch-burnings promoted by the Scottish clergy down to the early part of the eighteenth century. His plantation of Ulster by Scottish settlers has greatly affected history down to our own times, while the most permanent result of the awards by which he stimulated the colonization of Nova Scotia has been the creation of hereditary knighthoods or baronetcies. His encouragement of learning left its mark in the foundation of the town's College of Edinburgh, on the side of Kirk Field, the scene of his father's murder. The southwestern highlands, from Lochabar to Islay and Cantyre, the scene of constant clan feuds and repressions, resulting in the fall of the Macdonalds and the rise of the Campbell chief, Argyll, to the perilous power later wielded by the Marquis against Charles I. Many of the sons of the dispossessed Macdonalds, driven into Ireland, were to constitute the nucleus of the army of Montrose. In the Orkneys and Shetlands the constant turbulence of Earl Patrick and his family ended in the annexation of the islands to the Crown, 1612, and the Earl's execution, 1615. End of chapter 23, part 2. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.